So, originally I was not scheduled to preach today, but I offered up my services last weekend to help out. And then immediately after that, I thought, uh, man, what am I going to preach on? Because <laughs> I didn't really have anything planned. Pastor JP is going to be taking over the catechism lessons here soon. And so I didn't have a lesson prepared that I could expand on. So then I immediately thought, well, I could preach on Romans 9 because I've been spending a lot of time in that text lately, just for my own personal benefit and study. But then I thought, ah, do I really want to do that? That's kind of predictable. We're a Reformed church. How many times are we going to talk about election and predestination? But then I got to thinking about our recent catechism lessons and the means of grace, and in particular, the use of the word and of the sacraments, which were our, our recent, more recent lessons. And I got to think of how that actually can relate to Romans chapter 9. Because when you really think about what is going on there in Romans 9, there's definitely a great lesson to be learned from that chapter regarding our use of God's means of grace. And so after a day or two of thinking about it, I decided we're going to stick to Romans 9. That way, one, I can teach on something that I'm currently looking at, which is good. And two, I can tie it in with something that's still fresh on our minds uh, regarding our, uh, the means of grace and the catechism lessons. So, today I have simply titled the sermon, Romans 9 and the Means of Grace. Well, before we go any further, let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, as we now open your word to explore its meaning and application to our lives, I pray that you would be with us today, you would be with me in delivering that word that I would fade into the background and that your word, your truth, your power, your spirit be made manifest. And I pray that you would be with our people today, that you would challenge them and convict them to encourage them and strengthen them in your word by the power of your spirit. To your praise and honor in Christ's name, amen. So one of the reasons I've been spending some time recently in Romans 9 is because every once in a while this chapter comes up in my social media circles and there are quite a few people who would strongly disagree with the way that we typically interpret this chapter as Reformed Christians. And of course the big point of contention is the doctrine of election. That Paul is dealing with election is obvious to all. He specifically uses those words, God's purpose of election in verse 11. The fuss is what is meant by election, who or what is being elected and for what purpose. Some argue that election here has to do with nations as a whole and their historical functions, not individuals. Others argue that individuals are in view, but their election doesn't have anything to do with salvific issues, purposes. And then, of course, there is the view that election here is describing an election of individuals unto salvation. Now, as I've already indicated, my desire with this chapter is to relate it to the use of God's means of grace, because I think there's some very practical things we can glean from it regarding that. But to get to that point, we need to spend just a little bit of time exploring what exactly this chapter is about. Now understand there's a ton of stuff that can be said from this chapter. However, again, it's my purpose today not to analyze and expound upon every single word. My goal today is simply to kind of step back a little bit 
kind of get this, the sense of the overall flow of the, cha- of the chapter, at least up to verse 13, and consider what Paul is arguing, and then get a basic general understanding of what's going on here, and then relate that to the means of grace, and some, make some practical application there. So, with that said, what is going on in Romans chapter 9? Well, before we even start reading it, I want to remind you of some things from chapter 8. I think it's important to consider what Paul had just said prior to chapter 9. Remember, these chapter divisions, are they weren't in the original. These are things that were inserted in the 1500s. So if we're not careful, we could look at these chapter divisions and think there's a break in his, in his thought, in his flow. But there's not. Now, it would be even better to consider all of what Paul has said, starting in chapter 1, but we don't have time for that. But I will be referring back to some of those things, though, later on. So now, let's just consider what immediately leads into chapter 9. After Paul in Romans 7 speaks of the struggle that we have with sin and the desire to be delivered from this body of death, Paul then glories in the fact that deliverance will come from God through Jesus Christ our Lord. In that verse 1 of chapter 8, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Paul then goes on to show this contrast between two types of people, those who walk according to the flesh versus those who live according to the Spirit. Those who walk according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, which is hostile to God. To live in the flesh here means to not submit to God's law, to not please God. And it ultimately leads to death in the full sense of the word. You, however, verse 9, chapter 8, he says, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If, in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you. And then in verse 10, if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit of life because of righteousness, the spirit is life because of righteousness, If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through the spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the spirit are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we might also be glorified with him. Now, notice here the emphasis Paul places on these two categories, those who live according to man's fallen nature versus those who live according to the spirit. You have flesh versus spirit, death versus life. And the spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are, quote, the children of God. We are already seeing some language here that's going to pop back up in chapter 9. And undoubtedly here, Paul is clearly speaking in terms of salvation. He goes on, after speaking of the sufferings we will go through with Christ, he says, verse 18, For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worthy, are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. 
For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. The suffering, as we see, that we go through now, as Pastor J.P. has been preaching on lately, in this life has a purpose. This groaning together in the pains of childbirth is eventually going to lead to our redemption as the children of God. And he says in verse 24, For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it for patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be firstborn among the brothers, among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. And here we have one of the most glorious promises of Scripture. For those whom God, who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. Hang on to those words, call. That's going to come up again. Hang on to that word purpose. Again, we're going to see that word in chapter 9. And how is it that all things work together for our good? It's because those whom God foreknew, he predestined, and those whom he predestined, he called, and those whom he called, he justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. This is, as the Reformation Heritage Bible states, known as the golden chain, wherein the unfailing sequence of God's saving acts are bound together such that the same group of people experiences every step. And it begins with what Paul calls for those whom he foreknew. Now, to foreknow here does not mean to know something or someone beforehand, since that would be true of all things and of all people. Rather, Paul is talking about people whom God has determined to love beforehand. And then Paul says this, verse 31, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who, is, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Notice here that Paul now brings up this word, elect. Calvinists didn't create that word. It's right here in the text. And here, the elect is clearly, beyond any dispute, a reference to people and their salvation. God's elect are those of whom he just spoke of as being foreloved, predestined, called, justified, and glorified. And then notice here, too, that he uses this language of being separated from the love of Christ. Nothing in all of creation, he says, can separate God's elect from the love of Christ. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Beloved, here we have one of the most glorious sections in all of Scripture. And I don't know of anyone who reads this chapter 
and then argues, well, this has nothing to do with individuals or nothing to do with salvation. Nobody argues that. And yet here Paul speaks of the elect, predestination, the called according to his purpose, the children of God, and being of the Spirit versus being of the flesh. So much of what we are going to see in chapter 9 is already here in chapter 8. It is these glorious truths about the golden chain of salvation and the redemption for God's elect that creates the backdrop for what we are about to hear now in verse 1 of chapter 9. Immediately after glorying in the love of Christ, which will without question redeem those whom God foreknew, Paul then says this, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears witness bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. What? Great sorrow and unceasing anguish? Where in the world did that come from? I mean, you just heard Paul utter some of the most glorious truths that you could ever hear, and his response now is to have great sorrow in unceasing anguish? Why, Paul? Well, Paul's going to tell us why. Verse 2. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Paul, no doubt, took great comfort in the truth of Romans 8. But as he's looking around, he sees a great multitude of people who don't know of this love. He sees a great multitude of people who are walking around according to the flesh, who are hostile to God, who do not submit to his law, indeed cannot submit, who do not please God. He sees a great multitude who are on the pathway to death. Now, before we get into who exactly these people are, because Paul is going to tell us, I want to just stop for a moment and ask you something here. When's the last time you felt great sorrow and anguish for that coworker or that family member or that neighbor next door who rejects Christ? When's the last time you wept for unbelievers? I got to admit, and I'm really preaching to myself here, I have my moments where I get so angry at what I see going on in the world, especially coming out of Pride Month. Just, ah, oh, gosh, it irritates me so bad. I get furious over the stuff you see being paraded around. Kids taking their, or parents taking their kids to, to drag shows and drag queens, preying on little children. I remember when I lived in New Orleans, there were times when I was downtown when I just wanted God to just, like, just end it right now. Just bring on the fire and brimstone. Let's just call it, call it now. I can certainly relate more to, I think, James and John, who, when they saw certain Samaritans reject Jesus, they said, Lord, do you want us to call fire to come down from heaven and consume them? That's me a lot, of, a lot of times, I'll admit. And yet Jesus turned and rebuked them. When I get in those moments, I have to remind myself, 
that if it were not for the grace of God, I'd be right there with him. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15, I'm the least of the apostles. Unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with, with me. John Calvin wrote this, The perdition of the Jews caused very great anguish to Paul, though he knew it happened through the will and providence of God. We hence learned that the obedience we render to God's providence does not prevent us from grieving at the destruction of lost men, though we know that they are thus doomed by the just judgment of God. For the same mind is capable of being influenced by these two feelings, that when it looks to God, it can willingly bear the ruin of those whom he has decreed to destroy, and that when it turns its thoughts to men, it condoles with their evils. They are then much deceived who say that godly men ought to have apathy and insensibility, lest they should resist the decree of God. Did you hear that? We believe in the eternal decree of God. But we are deceived, says Calvin, if we think affirming that doctrine should lead us to be indifferent and unconcerned about those around us who are perishing. Paul would go on to say in 10 verse 1, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. Do we desire that for others? Do we pray for them? Do we jump on opportunities to share the gospel with those around us? Jesus said in Matthew 5, verse 43, You have heard it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect as your Heavenly Father is perfect. As we're going to see in a minute, Paul affirmed the eternal decree of God, in particular how it relates to individuals and salvation. But that did not turn Paul into some cold-hearted determinist who stopped caring about people. That didn't turn him into a fatalist. You don't see Paul here saying, well, I made it. I'm in Christ. I'm content with my little remnant, my little small circle of brothers. And so to hell with everyone else. No, rather, Paul says, if it were possible, which it's not, but if it were, I could wish to be cast into hell myself for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. 
Here we not only see Paul's compassion and desire for others to experience what he just spoke about in Romans 8, but we see how this sets the stage now for the rest of this chapter and beyond. Again, to be clear here, Paul is clearly talking about individuals and salvation. When he says that he could wish to be accursed and cut off from Christ, he's talking in salvific terms. He just said in chapter 8 that nothing in all creation can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord, a love that God has for his elect, for whom he spared his own son who died for our sins to justify us. It's ludicrous to think that he now immediately turns to being grieved over non-salvific historical roles or whatever else you want to read into this chapter. Salvation is clearly in view. And that's why he said in 10.1 that he desires and prays for them to be saved. Why? Because they are accursed, cut off from Christ. To be anathema from Christ means to be separated from Christ and devoted to destruction. It is those in chapter 8 who walk according to the flesh, who are hostile to God, who cannot please God, and are on the pathway of death and destruction. But then to make matters worse, these are not just any ordinary people. Paul calls them brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Now, they're not brothers in Christ, as we often speak of one another. That's why he qualifies uh, qualifies brothers with the words kinsmen according to the flesh. You see, Paul was an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin, chapter 11, verse 1. And here, that's who he, he, that's who he is referring to, Israelites, fellow Jews, 11 verse 14, relatives according to the flesh. He affirms this in verses 4 through 5. There he says, they are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Now, folks, this is where it starts to get really interesting here in chapter 9. In these first three verses, I wanted you to see that salvation is clearly in view. But now, from the tail end of verse 3 down to verse 5, I want you to see who exactly it is that is in view. This is very important because the who that is in view here is going to frame the rest of the chapter and onward into chapters 10 and 11. As we are going to see in verse 6, There's a very serious dilemma that is presented that Paul is going to answer. In fact, spends the next three chapters addressing. And this dilemma is caused not only by this issue of salvation, but who it is exactly that's not experiencing salvation at that moment. And shockingly, Paul says it's his brothers, his kinsmen according to the flesh, his fellow Jews. Let that sink in for a moment. These are the people God chose from all the nations of the earth to reveal himself. These are the people for whom God gave multiple blessings and privileges. Just their name alone evoked such great blessing, for the name Israel harkens back to Genesis 32, where Jacob wrestled with God and was bestowed the name Israel. In Romans 11, Paul would call these Israelites God's people, quote-unquote. These are whom God gave the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. And then to top all of that off, the climax, 
is that the second person of the Trinity, when he took on our human nature and became incarnate, he did so by being born among them. He came from their stock. When you think about this, this is this should rattle your bones. It's shocking. Here you have the very people that God used to unveil his eternal redemptive plan. And yet the vast majority of them rejected those very things. The things that made them distinct and unique among the people of the earth. The incarnate Lord himself was born among them. And yet they are accursed and cut off from him. How can this be? What in the world is going on with these people? Do you sense the dilemma here? Do you feel the tension? And listen, don't think this doesn't affect you being a Gentile in 2022. Think about it for a second. If these people, as blessed and as privileged as they were, end up being cut off and accursed, what makes you think you're going to make it? I mean, I don't know about you, but I wasn't born into any of this privilege. White privilege, maybe, some tell me, but not Jewish privilege. <laughs> I can't trace my family lineage to Abraham or to any of the tribes. I was born into that segment of humanity that was alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenant of promises, having no hope and without God in the world, Ephesians 2.12. So if these people didn't make it, what hope is there for me? This is a very serious issue. When you read chapter 8 and then you go into the first five verses of chapter 9, like I said, it should rattle your cage a little bit if you're paying attention. How is it that these people, God's people, are cursed? How is it that God used these people to bring salvation into the world, gave them all of these privileges and promises, and yet these people, by and large, aren't experiencing that very salvation. And so you can't help but wonder, did God's plan fail? Now, Paul doesn't ask it that way, but that's exactly what's being called into question here in verse 6. Verse 6 says, but it is not as though the word of God has failed. I think this is probably the most important verse in this section because it's setting us up for what's going to follow in the rest of the chapter and in chapters 10 and 11. God's word, indeed God himself, God's faithfulness has been brought into question. Why? Because you have these people to whom we're given the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises, and from whom came Christ himself, according to the flesh. Yet the vast majority of them are cursed and cut off from Christ. Why? Did God fail? Did his word fail? Did his promises fail? Did God simply not perform what he promised to perform? Well, Paul anticipating these objections answers no. It is not as though the word of God has failed. Okay, then, Paul, the word did not fail, but why? How do you explain all this unbelief and rebellion on Israel's part? And it's at this point that Paul then is going to answer that question which, as I said, extends all the way into chapter 11. It presents a dilemma that arises out of verses 1 through 5 that Paul is now going to address from here on out. Now, again, we don't have time to look at all these chapters, but what we can do is see what Paul immediately goes to 
as he begins to answer this dilemma. Chapters 10 and 11 are rooted in something that's going to be brought up here in the immediate context. I got to think, too, now, if there was ever a point at which Paul could have argued and highlighted the importance of free will, this would have been the time to do it, right? This would have been the perfect time to say, well, no, it's not as though the word of God failed because God delivered what he said he was going to deliver, but ultimately it's up to the person to accept those promises and for the word to take effect. Is that Paul's answers to why ultimately there are cursed Jews, even though they had been given all of these privileges? No, it's not even close. Instead, he says this. Here's his answer. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Excuse me? <laughs> what? What in the world does that mean? Not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Not all who are children of Abraham are his children. What in the world does that mean? Paul, it sounds to me like you're flat out contradicting yourself. How can you be an Israelite but not belong to Israel? How can you be an offspring of Abraham yet not be his child? You remember, I, you know, I said this last week, the law of non-contradiction states that something cannot be both or cannot both be and not be at the same time and in the same sense. You can't be an Israelite and not be an Israelite at the same time and in the same sense. Now, Paul is going to explain how you can be. But before he does, let's use a little logic here and see if we can anticipate his answer. Remember, there are issues of time and sense when we talk about contradiction. Well, there's nothing here to suggest that he's talking about different times. He's talking about a people during his time. So what about sense? Could he be using the term Israel in two different senses? He would have to be in order to avoid a logical contradiction. Well, he's going to confirm that he is, in fact, doing this with verse 8. However, before we read his explanation... Let's just stop and consider for the moment that, remember, we dropped into chapter 9 without reading any of the previous chapters, except for a little bit in chapter 8. Again, I want to remind you of some things that were said in chapter 8 that should have already have gotten your attention already regarding this possibility of two senses of Israel. Recall that in chapter 8, verse 14, he said, it's those who are led by the Spirit of God who are the sons of God. And then verse 16, that it is the Spirit himself who bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. Now, he's touching on it there, and you can infer some things from that. But if that's not clear enough, consider what Paul says earlier in this letter in Romans 2. In verse 17, he says, But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will, and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law. And if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having the law, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. 
For as it is written, the name of God is blaspheming among the Gentiles because of you. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code in circumcision and break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Paul's pretty plain and explicit right there. No one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, but a true Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit. Can you hear Romans 8 in those words? Those who are led by the Spirit of God are the sons of God. Romans 3 verse 1 it goes into a dilemma that's very similar to what we see in Romans 9. If no one is a, if no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, then Paul asks, well, what advantage then has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Understand something. The name Jew was used initially of those who dwelt in Judah, but then it was used of the Israelites in general. And so it was a matter of great pride to be a Jew. They received the law of God and they relied on it, verse 17. They looked at the fact that God had given them many blessings and privileges and then assumed that, well, God must be pleased with us. And so they boast in God, verse 17. They were given the sign of the covenant of grace, circumcision. This sacrament pointed to the saving blessings that sinners who belong to Christ have in him. It was a sign of being united to the Lord, Genesis 17. It was a sign of the new birth, Deuteronomy 36, and a sign of repentance and faith, Deuteronomy 10, verse 16. These people had both the scriptures and the sign of the covenant. Yet Paul turns on them and quoting Isaiah says that the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Why? Because even though they, you have all of these privileges, it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, Paul says, but doers of the law who will be justified. Chapter 2, verse 13. And when you break that law, Mr. Jew, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. You, in effect, become an unbelieving Gentile. Here you have unbelieving Jews who had convinced themselves that they were not really sinners in God's sight. And they did so by comparing themselves to others. By comparing what they had outwardly being privileged by God to what others and Gentiles didn't have. And yet Paul says to them, you are in actuality no different from them. And so again, that raised the question we see in chapter 3, verse 1. Well, what advantage has the Jew? What is the, what is the value of circumcision? Paul's answer, much in every way, to begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. Do you hear Romans 9 here? Now, Paul here is not going to give a long list as he does later in chapter 9, but here he at least starts the list. And one of the great privileges of being a Jew was that they were entrusted with the oracles of God, that is, the Holy Scriptures. 
And yet, even though they had these great privileges, they failed to use them in the manner for which they were intended. They failed to see the point. Beloved, possessing the Bible and even knowing its contents was great and wonderful, but friend, that alone is not enough. It will only serve to condemn you even further if you fail to embrace what those privileges are pointing you to. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Paul then asked in chapter 3, verse 3, a question related to what we see in chapter 9. But what if some of those who are entrusted with the oracles of God are unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God by no means? Is this essentially what Paul is touching upon here in Romans 9? I think it is. Here in chapter 9, Paul is revisiting this reality that you have these Israelites, a very blessed and privileged people who have been given the scriptures, the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the law, the worst of the promises, and even among them Christ is born. But whereas earlier in the letter, Paul brings these things up to make the case that in their unbelief, they are condemned along with the rest of the world. Here now, Paul grieves over their unfaithfulness and now seeks to elaborate further on the implications that this may or may not have about God, his faithfulness, and his word. I mean, if in the end, the Jews end up being in no better shape than the unbelieving Gentile, then what was the point of all this? What was the purpose in all of it? Was there any purpose? Now, as I mentioned earlier, Paul's going to spend the rest of this chapter in chapters 10 and 11 unfolding that purpose, but in immediate context, he grounds the purpose in this, verse 11, chapter 9. He says, In order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. Now, where did we hear those words before? Well, we just heard it in chapter 8. That's why I read it. That's why I wanted you to hang on to those things. Again, what did he say? We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified to those... whom he justified he also glorified what shall we say to these things if god is for us who can be against us he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all how will he not also with him graciously give us all things who shall bring any charge against god's elect it is god who justifies who is to condemn christ jesus is the one who died more than that who was raised who is the right hand of god who is interceding for us And remember, earlier in chapter 8, we read that creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from the bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Beloved, this is none other than the eternal, invisible covenant redemption being made manifest in history. That's what this is. This is that eternal plan now coming to fruition in time and space. And it is that very plan that is now here in chapter 9 being revealed historically in time and space with the Israelites. And what was that plan? 
Was it to create an ethnic people with whom God would form a visible church, promising to save every person within that race of people? No. Rather, he used the Israelites to unveil and to unfold his eternal covenant within time and space, a covenant that has an electing purpose. And that electing purpose, in turn, is done to demonstrate that people are not saved by their works, but by him who calls. That has always been the plan. And now Paul is going to prove that with two examples from Israel's history. He says in verse 8, This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, Romans 8, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said about this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our, fa our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had not done anything, uh, done either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told the older will serve the younger. As it is writ written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. So first there was Isaac and Ishmael. Both of these men were children of Abraham according to the flesh. But they, did, they came from two different women. Do you remember the story? And I want you to listen to this summary that uh, John Piper provides. He sums it up nice and neat, so I'll just borrow that. <laughs> listen, listen, this is the context of the scripture that Paul is quoting to make his point in Romans 9. In Genesis 12 and 13, God promised Abraham that he would have innumerable descendants who would be a great nation. And in Genesis 15, 4, God told Abraham that Eleazar, his slave, would not be his heir, but your own son shall be your heir. And Abraham believed the Lord, 15, 6. But in Genesis 16, Abraham undertakes to solve the problem of his wife's barrenness by having a son by Hagar, her Egyptian handmaid. When Hagar was pregnant with Ishmael, the Lord promised her, I will so greatly multiply your descendants that they cannot be numbered for multitude. Behold, you are with child and you shall bear a son and you shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has he given heed to your affliction. He shall be a wild ass of a man, his hand against every man and every, hands, every man's hand against him and he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. But then in Genesis 17, God makes a covenant with Abraham, the essence of which is, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your seed after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your descendants after you. I will be their God. Then to Abraham's dismay, God prays that Sarah will have a son to inherit this covenant promise. Abraham pleads, oh, that Ishmael might live in thy sight. But God answers, no, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. And I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I will bless him and make him fruitful and multiply him exceedingly. He shall be the father of twelve princes, and I will make him a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear you at this season next year. This promise concerning Isaac is reaffirmed in Genesis 18 in spite of Sarah's skepticism about her own age and Abraham's age. Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you in the spring and Sarah shall have a son. That's what Paul quotes in Romans 9. 
And then later, after the birth of Isaac, Abraham is distraught at Sarah's intention to banish Hagar and Ishmael. But God reassures him with these words, whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you. For in Isaac shall your seed be called. And then Piper highlights the purpose behind this as it relates to his argument in Romans 9. It is evident, Paul says, from the patriarchal narrative that even though Ishmael was just as much a physical descendant of Abraham as Isaac, nevertheless God chose Isaac even before he was born and not Ishmael to be the beneficiary of the covenant promises. God did promise to make Ishmael a great nation, but he never said to him, I will be your God or I will give you the land of your sojournings. By this election of Isaac instead of Ishmael, God shows that physical descent from Abraham does not guarantee that one will be a beneficiary of the covenant made with Abraham and his seed. Something more must be true about a physical descendant if he is to be an heir of the covenant. And what that something more is described in Romans 9, 8, and 9. One must be a child of promise, not just a child of the flesh. A child of promise is a descendant of Abraham whom God freely designates by his own sovereign design to be a beneficiary of the covenant promises. The miraculous birth of Isaac by the Lord's free exercise of power, remember he said, is anything too hard for the Lord? I will come, illustrates that God is free in designating the beneficiaries of his promises. He is never trapped into making any particular physical descendant like Ishmael, the heir of his covenant. Now, given the example of Isaac and Ishmael, I suppose someone may spot a loophole in Paul's argument. It is possible, says Piper, that Paul's opponents, who apparently think that Jewish, uh, physical Jewishness is the basis for being blessed by God, would say, well, of course Ishmael was excluded from the covenant. For one thing, his mother was an Egyptian. It's first mother crack. And for another, the promises made about Isaac in Genesis 17, 18, 14, 20 were all made after the birth of Ishmael so that God could see what sort of person he was. So since he was a wild ass of a man and had an Egyptian mother, God rejected him and chose Isaac. Now we are all legitimate, full-blooded heirs of Isaac and so may count on God's covenant blessing. Therefore, to demonstrate that they have not yet grasped the significance of God's free and sovereign election, Paul then presents his opponents with another Old Testament illustration to close the loophole in the first one. The birth to Isaac and Rebekah of their twin sons, Jacob and Esau, was announced to Rebekah in Genesis 25-23. Two nations are in your womb and two peoples born of you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The elder shall serve the younger. How it became possible for Jacob and his descendants to gain ascendancy over Esau and his descendants, even though the right of primogeniture belonged naturally to Esau, described in Genesis 25 and 27. In the first passage, Esau despised his birthright and sold it to Jacob for a bowl of pottage. In the second passage, Jacob tricks Isaac into giving him the blessing of the firstborn, a blessing which included the words, Be Lord over your brothers, and may your mother's son bow down to you. Thus, in the lives of Jacob and Esau, the conditions were met for the fulfillment of the promise concerning their descendants, the nations of Israel and Edom. Paul's purpose in, re 
in referring to God's choice of Jacob over Esau is to show that there is no way to evade the implications of God's unconditional election here. Unlike Isaac and Ishmael, Jacob and Esau had the same parents who were both Jews. And also, also unlike Isaac and Ishmael, when, deter, when the determining promise was made concerning Jacob and Esau, both were yet unborn and had done nothing good or evil. Moreover, they were twins in the same womb at the same time, and by all human standards, the elder Esau should have received the blessing of headship over his brother. Here there are no loopholes. God's choice of Jacob over Esau cannot be due to any human distinctives possessed by birth, like Jewishness, or action, like righteousness. It is based solely on God's own free and sovereign choice. And beloved, it is those very points that Paul brings into this context to explain how it is that a people that have been so blessed and privileged as the Israelites in receiving all of these things are at the same time, by and large, accursed and cut off from Christ. Salvation comes solely by the grace and sovereign decree of God in God alone. That's it. That's Paul's answer. It doesn't come to you because of who you are ethnically and who you were born to. It doesn't come because God looked into the future and saw what you would do, good or bad. It doesn't come to you based on any works of yours. And to borrow language Paul is going to use later in this chapter, it does not depend on any human will or exertion, but it rests solely upon God's sovereign will to show mercy on whom he chooses to show mercy and harden whomever he wills. That's why all this was set up the way that it was. That's why God made visible his kingdom on earth in time and space, giving a people all of these privileges, yet never promising the salvation of every single individual involved in that visible church. It was so that in the manifestation of God's eternal invisible covenant redemption in time and space, God's purpose of election would continue which in turn serves to show that we are not saved because of anything done on our part, but solely because of him who calls. Now, there's so much more you can get into with this chapter. As you read on in verse 14, it raises even more questions that Paul addresses. But we'll have to save that for later. But what I want to do now and say, briefly in closing, is now that we see the overall flow of this chapter, I said in the beginning that I want to relate this now to our lessons on the means of grace, especially as it relates to our recent lessons on the sacraments. Now, if you've been paying attention and and you're thinking about it, you can probably anticipate where I'm about to go with this. In case you missed it, let me explain. Understand it as I have pointed out. What you have here in Romans 9 is the manifestation of God's eternal and invisible covenant redemption in time and space. It is his eternal plan is being made manifest in history. This is where we get the whole idea of there being an invisible, invisible church. It's from this reality that not all Israel belong to Israel. That no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit. 
Romans 9, verses 4 through 5, is describing the visible church as it existed under the old covenant. And beloved, what was true of that visible church then is just as true now. In fact, Paul makes this very case in chapter 11. He says, so too at the present time there's a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect attained it. But the rest were hardened, as it is written. God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so they cannot see and, their, and, their, and bend their backs forever. So I asked, did they stumble in order that they may fall? By no means. Rather, through their tra- trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world and that their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more would their full inclusion mean? Now I'm speaking to you Gentiles, and as much then as I am an apostle of the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will be their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump, and if the root is holy, so are their branches. But if some of the branches were broken off in you, Although a wild olive shoot were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, if you are, remember it is not you who support the root, but the root supports you. Then you will say branches were broken off that I may be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and severity of God. Severity to those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. Listen to what our confession says about the church, chapter 25. And tell me you don't hear Romans 9 in this. The Catholic or universal church, which is invisible, consists of the whole number of the elect that have been, are, and shall be gathered into one under Christ, the head thereof, and is the spouse, the body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. The visible church, which is also Catholic or universal under the gospel, not confined to one nation as before the law, consists of all those throughout the world that profess to the true religion together with their children and is the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, the house and family of God out of which there is no ordinary possibility of salvation. Unto this Catholic visible church, God hath given the ministry, oracles, ordinances of God. You hear Romans 9? For the gathering perfecting of the saints in this life to the end of the world and doth by his own presence and spirit according to the promise make them effectual thereunto. This Catholic church hath been sometimes more, sometimes less visible. In particular, churches which are members thereof are more or less pure, according as the doctrine of the gospel is taught and embraced. Ordinances administered in public worship perform more or less purely in them. The purest churches under heaven are, both, are subject both to mixture and error, and some have so degenerated as to become no churches of Christ, but synagogues of Satan. 
Nevertheless, there will always be a church on earth who worship God according to his will. Beloved, with all of the emphasis that we have placed on the importance of attending church, reading the word, listening to preaching and teaching, partaking of the sacraments, being baptized, partaking of the Lord's Supper, fellowshipping with the saints, praying, and all the rest, understand something. There is a very real and serious danger involved in all of this. Even for you who have been the most zealous in these things. And the danger is this, to be like these Jews who in their same position failed to understand the point of all these wonderful privileges. In all of their religious fervor, they fell short of a true knowledge of God and of Christ. They rested in their privileges rather than resting in what these privileges were pointing them to. You know, Paul says in chapter 9, as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. What shall we say then, that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it? That is the righteousness that is by faith, but that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith. But as it were, based on works, they stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it was written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. It's not talking about pagans. It's about church people. They have a zeal for God but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Beloved, do not be like these professing believers within the early visible church, simply going through the motions, only to find yourself on the day of judgment under the wrath and fury of God. It is one thing to possess these privileges. It's another thing entirely to obey the truth that these privileges are pointing you to. And what are those truths? Romans 3.21, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. Again, so as the Reformation Heritage Bible study, uh, study Bible states so well, Christ is the object of our faith. Our own believing is not the object of our faith. We must look outside ourselves to Christ. The Old Testament testifies that we must look to Christ. Our only hope of righteousness is not in our works of obeying God's law, but in Christ's work of redeeming sinners at the cost of his precious blood. 
Christ alone can satisfy God's justice directed against sinners and appease his righteous wrath against those who dishonor him. Anyone, Jew or Gentile, who trusts in Christ alone is declared righteous by the supreme judge. And thus the Lord says to all who hear the gospel, Behold me, behold me, Isaiah 65.1. Have you cast aside your self-righteousness and received and rested upon Christ as your only righteousness before God? Beloved, have you seriously contemplated the truths of which these means of grace that we go through every Sunday, the truths of the sacraments of baptism, Lord's Supper, are delivering to you and pointing you to? Are you accepting, receiving, and resting upon Christ alone for your justification, your sanctification, and eternal life? Or are you just going through the motions, thinking that somehow your outward participation alone in church and even in the means of grace, we're going to save you in the end. Wherein lies your hope? 